0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Word with Dr. David Clay. We are talking about opioid use disorder, or more uh, generally speaking, substance use disorder, according to the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. I say we have been. uh, Our first two, uh, last two podcasts uh, centered upon this. We began, though, this series on uh, substance misuse, Based on uh, at least uh, referencing a national survey that uh, was conducted that that uh, showed in 2017 approximately 19.7 million Americans, United States of America, suffered a substance use disorder, and of those 74%, 74 included alcohol. Uh, and it, does not, it did not necessarily say that they were alcoholics, but we would presume that alcohol uh, was probably not a singular event, but a uh, potential for not only abuse, but possibly dependence. It is also noteworthy, as we've already said in previous podcasts, that 85% of those diagnosed with a substance use disorder relapse in the first year. Uh, Again, this is not specific to any particular category of substance, but in a more general sort of term or way. We also went on to report that the most addictive substances, and uh, there were basically 10 on the list, we're going to talk about four, at the head of the list was heroin or opioid dependence, which last podcast uh, we'd gotten into quite specifically. Uh, Second on that list was cocaine. Third on that list was nicotine, as with cigarettes. And then number ten on that list was marijuana. And uh, we thought, uh, I thought, mentioned that that would be probably a very important discussion to have since most individuals do not see marijuana as having any sort of real adverse or negative consequences attached to it, and maybe it does, doesn't. Maybe it does, though, because it is on this most addictive list, and still in the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, uh, fifth edition uh, is considered a uh, potential drug of misuse, and uh, with that, uh, dependence, and what is dependence but addiction, And so when it hits the top 10, or within the top 10 of the most addictive substances, category of substances, uh, it's probably worthy of conversation. So, having reset all of that, for those of you who may not have uh, had an opportunity to enjoy the first two podcasts on this uh, subject, uh, you'll get at least some background information. I'm going to go rather quickly through the diagnostic criterion, which is what we have done the last two podcasts as well, for opioid-related disorders. And once more, we call this, or the American Psychiatric Association calls this substance-related and addictive disorders, uh, and they've chosen to call it use, which is different than what we formerly called it, including the American Psychiatric Association, where they would identify it as abuse and dependence. Now they call it use disorder, and though the, uh, the conceptualization of all that has not really changed significantly, it's viewed more as a continuum rather than as one or the other, which probably allows for room for some individuals to fall somewhere between abuse and dependence, uh, and for us to, to maybe uh, see things in a more uh, complete or uh, uh, a broader sort of continuum, uh, broader terms. So, opioid use disorder. Again, this category applies to presentations in which symptoms characteristic of opioids cause clinically significant distress or impairment in social occupation or other important areas of functioning, but does Uh, but, and includes, I should say, not but, but and includes uh, at least two of the following, and we've got nine, uh, excuse me, ten, and uh, I'll run through those again rather quickly. Opioids are taken in larger amounts and over a longer period than was intended. Excuse me. There's a persistent desire or unsuccessful efforts to cut down or control control opioid use. A great deal of time is spent in activities necessary to obtain the opioid, use the opioid, or recover from its effects. That's number three. Number four, there is a craving or a strong desire or urge to use opioids. Number five, Recurrent opioid use resulting in a failure to fulfill major role obligations at work, school, or home. Number six, continued opioid use despite having persistent or recurrent social or interpersonal problems caused or exacerbated by the effects of opioids. Number seven, important social, occupational, or recreational activities are given up or reduced because of opioid use. Number eight, recurrent opioid use in situations in which it is physically hazardous. Uh, I believe last podcast we ended on seven important social, occupational, or recreational activities are given up or reduced because because of opioid use. So number eight, we'll kind of elaborate as we did in the prior podcast on uh, these characteristics. And again, you only have to have two. Now, I've just given you seven. There's three more, but you only have to have two in order to uh, manifest or to meet criterion for opioid use disorder with, uh, well, actually, there's 11. I should correct myself. With then any of these 11, uh, these last maybe four, eight, nine, 10, 11, uh, particularly 10 and 11, I should say it that way, Uh, are going to probably capture that idea of abuse, translated dependence, but you could have any that's up to this point and not really have to have tolerance or withdrawal, which is 10 and 11, to meet the criterion. It just takes two from the categories. So, number eight, recurrent opioid use in situations in which it's physically hazardous. What we mean by that, or what I would take the APA to mean by that, American Psychiatric Association, to mean by that is there is some danger attached to the use of the drug. Now, that can be danger to self. It can be danger to others. First thought on the danger to others would be, again, operating a motor vehicle. Uh, But it could include uh, someone who is intoxicated at work, and whose co-workers depend upon them for safety's sake, and uh, with that they're not capable of uh, managing themselves, more so cannot be counted upon to be safe at the work site, and would therein represent a risk of physical harm. It could be a person who, by means of or way of using the drug, subjects themselves as well to some form of dangerous hazardous situation. Uh, There's many things that go about using opiates that can kill you or subsequently lead to your death. Uh, There would be also um, needles. I've heard stories of needles being broken uh, in a person's arm or body. Uh, Oftentimes, uh, opioids are injected in the neck and certainly that can create all kinds of problems with broken needles, not only with broken needles, but could lead to, uh, with a dirty needle, infections. Uh, there is certainly the communicable disease aspect of all of that. Hepatitis can be communicated or transferred through the use of dirty needles. Uh, there is also then the legitimate risk that with opiates, opioids, heroin, number two, one on our most addictive list of the top uh, ten that we're discussing Four on that top ten list. Uh, opioids can kill you. You can overdose. Uh, as opioids then are also sold, uh, and uh, not all, of course, are either pharmaceutically made or ph- what we call, again, pharmaceutical grade, where there would be a prescription or it would be a pre- prescription drug. Many of these are sold black market, uh, may give appearance of a prescription drug or pill. Uh, Even so, a powder that is, uh, again, the drug dealer would say is a particular substance. (laughs) But how do you know? Uh, What is in that? Uh, What it's been, as they call it, laced with? And uh, right now, fentanyl is uh, probably considered the most potent Uh, Meaning that it takes smallest amounts to achieve grandest or greatest of effects, drug effects, and uh, might be laced with heroin uh, or uh, some substance like that, in some form like that, combination of substances in form like that, and sold as something completely different, and you would not know, and could easily then think you would know how much to inject or what you're familiar with in terms of injection. And overdose, kind of staying with that just a moment longer, maybe a little bit of a rabbit trail, as they call it. Uh, most individuals who would, would in use, say ingest, inject, that's the word, would inject a substance into their system, though, or would purchase a drug in this way, would have no real way of knowing even so much, not only what's in it, but because the body tolerates substances in different ways and because drug addicts, uh, those that qualify for the diagnosis of drug misuse, would take a variety of different substances, some of which have, unfortunately, this thing called potentiation, The two substances create a certain effect or make a certain effect much more likely to occur, don't know what's in their system, what they've taken, how much they've taken, and really the tolerance part of it is with opiates, the body has an amazing capacity to tolerate a lot of opiates. It would require that to occur gradually over a period of time, which is the more natural way for that to happen. Uh, But at some point, a person may not even realize how much their body can actually tolerate versus not tolerate or be intolerant to. And the intolerance would be, again, in that category of creating a problem, which in terms of this particular criterion would be a legitimate risk or hazard physically to one's health or even life. Uh, another thing that, a uh, uh, phenomenon that often happens with drug ab- abuse or misuse or addicts or addiction is that an individual will switch off, sometimes will find substance like Suboxone, uh, which is buprenorphine, naloxone combination. The brand name is Suboxone. It is a medication-assist drug. It's intention to help folks with particularly opioid use disorder to uh, come off of or no longer need to take opiates. Uh, The buprenorphine is a synthetic opiate. The naloxone is a blocker, blocks the receptor sites for opiates. But in the way that that works at the neurological level, when those receptor sites are blocked, the ones that are available, again, through this notion of potentiation, has the effect of actually being as potent or strong as any opiate might be when all the receptor sites are available. Just because the way neurons fire, it is, again, in an all-or-none sort of manner or fashion. It just takes the minimal amount to get a neurological or, or neuronal activity, a response, at that neuron level. So, naloxone's in the system... There's fewer receptor sites. It doesn't take as much. But the person who's been on suboxone who then otherwise would go and go off the suboxone and take an opiate in order to get the effect because that's the selling point of the suboxone. uh, Combination buprenorphine and naloxone is that you really don't get the psychological high off of an opiate. It's discouraging then of folks using opiates because as long as you're on the Suboxone, you won't get the high. It also is sort of harder to overdose if only because the notion is that the receptor sites are limited. They're all filled with something. Even if it's buprenorphine synthetic opiate, the naloxone is in your system and it's much like an addict who has overdosed. They give them naloxone. That brings them back from death. So, this idea, though, that the person might take or use what they used to use, thinking that, oh, well, this is what I used to use. Maybe they'll reduce it some, but they really have no idea that their tolerance, physically, has gone back to what it was when they initially used opiates or at least is consistent with the amount of buprenorphine or synthetic opiate that's in their system, and hence they overdose, especially as the naloxone is out of their system where they have stopped taking Suboxone. There is lethality in that. There is physical hazard in that, though the diagnostic criterion, a physical hazard does not necessarily mean Lethality or that you will automatically die. Most of those things, though, have as movement towards some end, they're all moving towards self-destruction, which is really ultimate self-destruction would be death. But you have increased risk of sickness and illness and infection through, again, uh, methods of, uh, of injection or, or uh, taking in the substance. Uh, it, it is a complicated pattern, but nonetheless... The, the prominent feature when it comes to this criterion is it's dangerous. Patients will say they wake up next to dead people. That's how dangerous it is. And as much as one might even use opiates in a recreational capacity and and just because you've used an opiate in a recreational capacity does not mean you'll become, opiate use disorder. It probably means most likely you've abused it, and in that, however you've gotten it, probably has some illegal or illicit aspect to it. And if you've used somebody else's prescription, oh, well, I've got one of these. It's prescribed to me, but I'll give it to you. That's illegal, too. That's that's not legal to do that. But this idea, though, that that when people use an opiate, they may or may not know whether it's going to result in death, but certainly even in an intoxicated state, it diminishes your ability to think and concentrate. It slows your reaction times down. Again, as with the example of a coworker on the job, that could, depending on the job, actually mean physical risk to somebody else as well as themselves. Operating a vehicle under the influence of an opiate is, in that same way, a a physical hazard to self as well as others. And we could go on and on and on. There's so many ways that drugs can hurt you, hurt others, kill you, kill others. So, Criterion 8 says, recurrent opioid use in situations in which it's physically hazardous. Again, I'm not even sure if it has to say physical in situations. It seems like all situations are going to have that risk, but maybe there's a safe place. Uh, I suppose that there are opium dens somewhere in the world, uh, Middle East, wherever, that you could go in and just become intoxicated and not have a risk. Hard to imagine even those would be always safe. So, criterion number nine of opioid use disorder, substance-related and addictive disorders, American Psychiatric Association, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, 5th edition. Continued opioid use, despite knowledge of having a persistent or recurrent physical or psychological problem that is likely to have been caused or exacerbated by the substance. Again, with opiates, because the body does tolerate Opiates uh, relatively well and may not immediately show any sort of uh, physical sort of reaction or side effect of the use that, that would be a problem. Eventually, in the end, though, as we've just got through explaining, particularly when it does come to the body's ability to function in a normal capacity with uh, the opiate in your system. Uh, There's all kinds of issues associated with even from basically uh, nutritional concerns to, again, your ability to sleep, uh, your ability to uh, digest food. Uh, There's all sorts of physical problems because it it attacks the homeostatic response, Uh, the basic homeostatic response being the basic thermostat, The regulatory system, the the primary means the body maintains homeostasis, which is normal. You sleep enough, you eat enough. When that gets compromised or that thermostat or that homeostatic response gets thrown off, then all of those primary sort of drives and the needs become out of balance. Again, homeostasis would be normal, would be balanced, improper balance and measure. They become so out of balance, the body begins to suffer. And with that, too, as this criterion mentions, psychological problems, opioids, in that same way, are very hazardous to or difficult, represent a hazard or difficulty to your emotional operations. And really, the hazard part is you can kill yourself suicide out of an emotional state as much as it would be just simply at the risk of using the drug. That's a hazard. There's lethality, again, attached to it. Why? Because the same homeostatic response, it's called also in conjunction the hedonic system, hedonism, pleasure-pain, feels good, feels bad, Feels good. It's possibly a more uh, positive or up kind of experience. Feels bad. It's possibly a more down, a negative sort of experience. Uh, there's the chances that otherwise, with that emotional dysregulation, you're going to feel more up under certain substances, category of substances, and with others, feel more down. But even if you were just exclusive, exclusively inclined to use opiates. The opiates disrupt your balance so much, the homeostatic response when it comes to the hedonic system or the pleasure pain as it correlates to the end of, again, meeting primary needs and drives, satiation, contentment. When you get what you need, there's naturally a positive that goes, uh, that's chemically neurotransmitter-driven that means that you're satisfied, that you will do it again as much as when you're out of balance and you need a particular substance or your body requires a certain thing, then you're going to feel hungry, discontent, and you'll do something again to the extent that you'll find satisfaction or contentment. Uh, It's also possible doing too much of even a good thing and feeling bad. The hedonic system, in that bad feeling, obviously, from a common sense standpoint, which really is a psychological sort of operation, will let you know, even if it feels good, in the end, it creates all these problems. It feels bad, especially after it's over. The chemical effect has left your body. and may even feel worse because it throws it so out of balance, and with that, because it is a controlled substance, because we will get into, in a moment, the 10 and 11, the tolerance and withdrawal, Tolerance really is where your body, again, has physically gotten to the point where it requires the substance to function and withdrawal normally. And withdrawal is where when that chemical is not in your body, then your body is out of normal function, balance, operational uh, system is compromised. The basic uh, biological system becomes so compromised operationally that it can't function. And with that, emotions are, if there's an up or euphoria, the withdrawal or the backside of that when you're coming off the substance is going to push it to the other extreme. Why? Because the body has readjusted itself to normal, attempting to maintain normalcy with the opioid, but when the opioids were removed, all that the body has done to move it to the other side Then becomes the predominant because the body does not react or shift or change as quickly. So if you took something to feel really good, really really high, your body says, "Wait a minute, that's too high. We're going to kind of make this change." Or it's going to kind of make this change. Sorry about the weird, uh, the body speaking as if I was part of the body, but it's going to try to make some change or adjustment, and then. When the opioid's out of your system, the adjustment's going to be overdone. So if it's up, the body kind of then naturally is inclined to take you down. But when the opioids get gone or removed, which is the predominant for the up, the body is going to overreact because it's adjusted to something that is no longer there and you're going to feel even more down. That creates depression. It's an emotional reaction. And when you get into that place psychologically, then you suffer all sorts of, again, emotional dysregulation, but mood disorders, anxiety disorders, all those things that are principally attached to our emotional reactions, you have a risk of suffering them. And then whatever happens as a result of the neurotransmitters or the biochemistry that goes into those emotional reactions as it affects your entire body because, again, there's a correlation between the hedonic system and the homeostatic response. As those things work in concert to do what's optimal in terms of functioning for you as an individual, your body, it will become so out of sorts, out of balance, uh, disproportionate in so many ways, too much of this, too little of that, that you will run the risk of secondary as with even somewhat causative by the drug use but nonetheless can become a problem unto itself of an emotional condition a psychological disorder now that again is one example of what ha- can happen individually and in that same way of an example and probably there's many others that I've not gotten into that's the general gist of it however when it comes to other people though It disrupts your ability to socially connect with others when you're using a lot of drugs. Even though that's a sociological dimension, it has with it then this idea of psychological aspect, or at least it itself. The sociological works within the context of the psychological to, again, bring about some feeling of satisfaction, contentment. We're social creatures. There's an adaptive advantage to being social, to connecting with people, to interacting with people, to having uh, common goals, to uh, having reciprocal relationships where you do this, I do that. We do it for the sake of covering each other or working together. We can get, get or accomplish those things that need to get done for the sake of survival and even pleasure. We can do that much better when we work together. Cooperation. Drugs, though... In and of themselves, drug use in and of itself lends one to become isolated. They no longer really need your help to feel better. They don't need what otherwise most drugs go to, this aspect of love and all the biochemistry that goes into it. I know love is uh, really maybe sounds a little odd in context of a discussion like this because it's not one of those terms that you commonly here in terms of science, uh, empiricism. But it is prosocial. We are pro-social creatures. That might be one of those terms that might be more common. But whether you say love or if it's just social beings for the sake of adaptability, we tend to want to be with other people. There's an adaptive and presu- presumably some sort of ele- evolutionary benefit to humans working together, which has resulted in us being in the position of dominance in the natural context of the world, uh, the natural world that we live in. But all that gets compromised. People become incredibly self-absorbed. They internalize. They pull inside of themselves. They're not reaching out to others. And if there is then some uh, intelligent design, (laughs) if I could call it that, or even if you would just Follow that that logic of, of adaptability. If there's an advantage to being social, then all your biochemistry and your neurotransmitters, especially as that is then the best way to meet all the primary drives, would be loaded toward this experience. But on a biochemical level, yet, on a biochemical level, what is love? It's all these great things, all these neurotransmitters and perfect Balanced, homeostatically, balanced, hedonically, balanced dimensions that includes both excitement, sympathetic nervous system, as much as, again, relaxation, contentment, uh, feelings of accomplishment, purpose, meaning that maybe you find more in the parasympathetic side, even if you don't include more of the psychological sort of Aspects such as purpose and meaning, it's <laughs> afterglow. It's, oh, this is contentment. This is satisfaction. But the way that the system has come to be, it's all perfectly balanced until you begin to introduce a substance, and then that substance can only work. Very important here, this, this comment, this, this uh, fact because there are receptor sites in your body that that drug or that substance plugs into, but the purpose of those receptor sites wasn't so that you could put a drug in there. <laughs> the purpose was so that your natural biochemistry, your natural uh, balance of neurotransmitters, the natural inter- interaction between the autonomic, the parasympathetic set parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems would be perfectly coordinated and integrated for optimal life experience both to the pleasure as well as the pain, the up as well as the down but with that a sense of contentment and purpose that translates psychologically to meaning and purpose contentment satisfaction that translates to meaning and purpose we have the best possible life available only because that's already there drugs go there And with that, we use too much of them, and we don't allow the natural sort of dimensions, the processes themselves to balance themselves out, and we throw everything out of whack. Everything gets messed up. What we think, then, is the answer to feeling really, really good, and we override with decisions and choices by such things, again, as use of a substance We put that in our body, and we throw everything out of balance. And we aren't even able to read it, register it, know it well enough out of the intellect where choice really comes, will, really resides. That's entirely psychological. We don't even know enough how to recalibrate. Maybe we read about that, but when it comes to looking at your body, when it comes to Internally registering where all the biochemistry is, we have no idea. And so we're left then to guessing. You can go to a doctor, you can go to a neurologist, a physiologist, you can go to somebody who is a chemist even and say, well, what should be there, uh, what shouldn't be there, a bio- uh, not a biologist, I guess, a biologist, uh, what should be there. Uh, zoologists, what shouldn't be there. And they can give you ideas, but they're not going to look inside of you except through the use of some sort of laboratory equipment or some sort of uh, test, blood test or whatever. They're not going to be able to tell you if it's balanced or not either, except to look at you and say, you know, you're pretty messed up right now emotionally. What's caused it? Sometimes it's physiological things, but as we're talking about in this discussion, it can have psychological dimensions, psychological problems. So, having said that, that's nine. Now again, you only have to have two in order to meet the criterion of an opioid use disorder. That gives us nine. If you have a problem with opiates... And the use of opiates, probably just because you use them, you've already got a problem. Even if you just use them recreationally, that's presumed. It's already abuse. Depending upon all these nine, and then I'm going to add 10 and 11 to it, you may have a bigger problem than even what you think you have. Because as much as the first nine have all kinds of implications, it's the last two, though, that we're going to look at that really probably captures the idea of a physiological addiction more than any of the others. The others can directly correlate or can reference maybe in more term better terms, maybe at times, more indirectly, but nonetheless, these last two, if you show either of these last two, it's probably a given you're not only abusing, as we used to call it, you are actually dependent. Now, that's important information, not only for you as answering the question, how do you know if you're addicted, an addict? Well, this is how you know. This is how we know. We, those that otherwise would treat you, who have addictions, who have that problem, or if we're going to make what we call a differential diagnosis, which is not only identify the substance misuse or disorder, but also if maybe you've had or has gotten to the point where it's exacerbated, maybe you had it before, you use the substance to treat it, self-medicate, that notion, or maybe because of substance use, you've gotten to the point where you've exacerbated Another emotional, psychological problem, we need to make that diagnosis. We need to, as going back to our first episode in this series of podcasts on uh, substance-related and addictive disorders, we need to come up with a plan, a strategy to treat it. But if we don't have a good diagnosis, then we're not going to have a good plan, especially if for whatever reason, we've missed an aspect of that, that is very crucial or critical, even if it's just become, as they used to call it, a syndrome, where there's several factors that have come independently that have come together to create a bigger problem. We need to unpack those. We need to differentially diagnose those. We need to be able to see them for what they are. If we're going to ask you to give up a particular substance, believing that otherwise you have a bipolar disorder, as an example, uh, which is, again, by its very nature, bipolar, two poles, manic on one side, depressive on the other, up one side, down the other. You've got these disemotional dysregulation, mood swings, that are just uh, already physically, physiologically based, genetically encoded. It's a disease. It's there. It's a disorder. But if you give up the substances and, perchance, You might have been using a substance in a form of self-medicating. Then if we miss the diagnosis of bipolar, once you're off those substances, you are probably going to have a more pronounced bipolar reaction, if only because all the substances are out of your system. We're going to be able to see it with much more clarity. Why? Because we've eliminated then the potentially other causes, potentially the other causes of that emotional dysregulation but we need to be aware of that, and the sooner we're aware of that, the more we can anticipate and expect, and hence we can then possibly already begin to take action, whether it's psychotherapeutically, as within the counseling and the psychology of it, or whether it's uh, uh, within the context of medicine. We can offer or refer uh, medicines that otherwise would be mood stabilizers that might help in that transition. But that's why it's so important to get a good diagnosis on the front end. But when it gets, returning back to this idea of opioid-related, substance-related addictive disorders, opioid-related disorders, we just need to say this, once it's gotten to 10 and 11 as I'm about to go over them, it's already at that level physiologically in your system and probably has some aspect of syndrome attached to it. Concomitant is another word. Concurrent, co-occurring conditions. Dual diagnosis is another way that that's commonly described. So, number 10, opioid-related disorders, according to the APA DSM-5. Tolerance, as defined by either of the following. A, a need for markedly increased amounts of opiates to achieve intoxication or desired effect. What does that mean? Tolerance, as defined by either of the following. A, one, a need for markedly increased amounts of opioids to achieve intoxication or desired effect. It means basically what we were mentioning earlier Your body has grown tolerant physiologically to the substance at a neurological level, at a brain and nervous system level, and because of the homeostatic response, because the body is constantly at work trying to achieve normalcy and balance. That is adaptive. That's, again, self-preserving. That's its core and primary function, the homeostatic response, the hedonic system. Because you have gotten to that point where the body has had to adjust itself so radically or as it's even progressively gotten to a radical point, an extreme, you need more and more of that substance here, an opiate, to get the same high, to get the same psychological feeling of satisfaction, contentment, uh, get that same pleasure Hedonic system, reaction, and response. So what it means is you need markedly, uh, significantly, identifiably increased amounts of opiates to get intoxicated or whatever your desired effect is. Maybe you just like to get that, what you used to call, buzz. I don't know if you call that a buzz with... Usually that's uh, something that's exclusive to cannabis or marijuana, but it's that idea, I don't want to get intoxicated, I just want to feel good. But then again, what addict probably likes that state of passing out and overdosing? They all would want to push it to the limit, but that's the problem again. They don't know the limit. Only their body knows. And their body tells them in some way, this is bad, but they persist. And with that, the body does everything it can to make adjustments to keep the person alive, but they keep pushing the limit because they also continue through tolerance to require uh, more and more. And I was gonna say a little more, but I don't know that I wanna quali- quantify it. It may be just more and more. Sometimes it's a little, sometimes it's greater to get that effect. And sometimes people just don't care. They just want it all, even if it kills them. Uh, a Blaze of Glory, there was a song, I think, uh, by that title. Now, that's one, as defined by either of the following tolerance. One was a need for increased amounts of opiates to achieve intoxication or desired effect. Two is an equally markedly diminished as in equally markedly uh, noticeable, identifiable, diminished effect with continued use of the same amount of an opiate. That just is really the backside. If the front side is, I need more to get high, the backside is what I've been taking, or as much the less and less, is in effect. You're not going to get as high. <laughs> Again, it's could sound a lot more complicated with all the verbiage, but the two go hand in hand. If you're not getting high on the amount you're taking, it means the amount you're taking is not getting uh, the same effect. It's diminished. So really it's one and the same, but it's looking at it from both sides. And probably one validates the other. Lest there be maybe maybe you just got a, a bad batch. You know, Somebody sold you something. But it wasn't what you wanted. Note, this criterion is not considered to be met for those taking opiates solely under appropriate medical supervision. Now, for those of you who have heard the first two podcasts, last podcast, we got into quite an extensive discussion, maybe more so along the dimensions of culture, opinion, uh, more in terms of the social aspects of this, uh, as it affects our society, social aspects, our society, uh, what we are, what we identify to be, what our values and morals, and you know all of those things that make us citizens of the United States of America. So, not to launch into that again today, although probably that's going to be something of an ongoing discussion, whether it has to do with opiates or not, or maybe some other way, other medications that are prescribed, or at least initiated, uh, have been used in a prescriptive sort of fashion, approved by the FDA for medical use and treatment of certain conditions, or maybe it's going to be other topics that have nothing to do with drugs or drug misuse, but the idea is, what happens when an authority gives you permission to do a particular thing. Now, again, we're talking here about medical because only MDs can prescribe opiates or um, what they call physician extenders, which be all those individuals like physician assistants or nurse practitioners that couldn't prescribe under the prescriptive authority of the MD. Possibly some states have granted prescriptive authority to Non-medical providers, psychologists in certain states, have some latitude in prescribing certain medications that, that the AMA and uh, the FDA have determined are really fairly benign. You can't really kill somebody on them. You can't harm somebody on them. It doesn't really require a lot of physiological understanding or knowledge neurologically as well of the body, brain, nervous system, etc., They can sometimes write those prescriptions. But for the sake of our discussion, the highest authority would be, I would think, in the context of prescriptions, would be a medical doctor. Medical doctors know that's their obligation and responsibility to be educated so that they receive the degree so that they then are granted or conferred the license to practice medicine. Now, not all medical doctors are the same in the sense of specialty. Not all of them are probably the same in sense of exposure or experience. Um, Likewise, exposure and experience. But if they write a script, then they are taking responsibility for that prescription. That is under their authority. The American Psychiatric Association, predominantly psychiatrists, which are a specialty of the medical profession, who write probably have the broadest prescriptive authority to write medications that address physiologically-based psychiatric or behavioral health concerns. A lot of those are controlled substances. But they say if a doctor says and they write a prescription, then there is adequate coverage. There is checks and balances to make sure that that prescription is not only valid, but that the physician or doctor making the prescription is going to know enough to be able to determine whether what they're giving you is causing you problems or not. So if you have a prescription for an opiate, good luck. That's very rare. I don't mean to be facetious too facetious a little. That's very rare these days that you might get that because of all the scrutiny, because of all this I'm speaking of today as well as last podcast. There there is much more of a watchdog sort of effect going on now, if only from the public sector But there's states that are in lawsuits with physicians and pharmaceutical companies and pharmacists and and, uh, even the federal government for not being watchful enough to prevent doctors from prescribing medications that somewhere on the front line they must have seen earlier than what we saw By the time the public, general public, saw it, it was a mess, this thing coming, the mess. Opioid crisis, opioid uh, addiction at the levels that we're at, all the drug trade and trafficking, the epidemic, as they call it, that has set up these lawsuits, established culpability to establish, well, who is responsible for this mess? Now, you can say it's the patient, right? They're the ones that go and get the pills. Maybe it is. I am sure a percentage, although I do not know specifically what that percentage is, or if anybody does, probably somebody has done research along this line. If they haven't, they should. How much of those are illegal, antisocial, criminal types that are just in making money off of selling a commodity that you can't give up? It's a clientele that never goes away. It's a guaranteed gig. There's constant need for it, if not need, an increased amount of the substance to maintain the effect. I mean, if it were in any other context of a business model that was legal, it's the perfect business to get into. People want it, need it, pay a bunch of money for it, you could get rich if you don't get caught. So you could blame certainly the patients, you can blame the illegal drug market for it, the cartel whatever whatever. But there's a good bit of individuals that got in a predicament because of a predicament because of prescriptive pain pills and physicians who were otherwise themselves not managing, individually looking at the patient, just going by liner notes or pharmaceutical representatives or the government not doing anything about it in a significant way, wrote scripts that were ridiculous. Again, tolerance being as it is, I understand some people might get incredibly huge prescriptions, numbers, uh, potency um, of pain medications, combinations of pain medications. By the time this ended, that's what we were seeing. But it's really hard for me to imagine somebody along the way didn't ask questions. Why? In the end, we all are scientists, right? Empirical I would think, again, with physicians being at the highest order, so to speak, of degrees with that kind of authority outside of a legal, this is a practice, this is a knowledge base, this is a degree-based sort of uh, context, why they did not recognize or realize we were heading for trouble. Per se, they just were innocent and just did what they were told. I understand that. Okay. But if you don't have physicians, then you at least have the second line of watch, watching or watchdog, uh, sort of second line of defense, and that's the pharmacists. Why in the world would a pharmacist not say, hey, wait a minute, doctor, do you know how much this person's getting not only from you, but they're getting it from another doctor? Now, yes, that's probably always been there, that recognition, and probably that's always, there's always been some of that that's happening or happened. But somewhere along the line, whether it's because of state by state, poor communications, practice by practice, poor communications, not a centralized database, whatever it was, that was missed. And then to go to the pharmaceutical companies, why did the federal government actually continue to improve, approve so much of these medications, not only in terms of potency, but for the sake of, again, distri- distribution? There was a place where, again, the American Medical Association was at some either formal official or informal unofficial level sanctioning the distribution of pain medications based on whether someone thought they needed more. I understand when you're in an outpatient facility where there's maybe limited laboratory tests that you could do where, again, they're no better looking inside of us than we are looking inside of us and knowing what's going on where they may run reports from, maybe there's a centralized database, I'm sure there was, where they ran reports of who was getting what prescription or they just relied on a patient to tell them. Yes, we all should be honest. Yes, we should all be truthful. Yes, we can presume innocence until proven guilty. Unfortunately, though, addicts, once they become an addict, once they develop this level of tolerance, are not really all that reliable. They're really not all that able to tell you the truth. Now, again, is that because they don't want to? I don't think necessarily, again, that's the case. But when the FDA or the feds decided that opiates were an appropriate answer to heroin when they opened up methadone clinics, they really set all of this into motion because they had set or established a precedent where rather than treating the problem, they were otherwise sanctioning it in a more legal way. Now, I'm not saying that opiates are easy to get off of. Actually, again, they're number one on the most addictive of all substances, category of substances list. I'm not saying that you don't go through an 85% relapse rate in the first year. I'm also not saying what we, not ignoring or dismissing what we said back in the first podcast, that approximately 36 months into your recovery, even with Suboxone, the percentage success rate still is well under 50%, meaning success that you're not going to have another relapse. It is hard, it is difficult. But it seems as if it were easier to regulate it, make it legal, regulate it than to treat it. But it doesn't stop. Now you could argue well, look at all the money that's spent, look at all that we go that goes into and even in a current context there's individuals who would want to open up houses, clinics, places that addicts can go to of no cost to them and get their drug, their opiate. They'd get a clean needle too. And trust, they'll have medical doctors there, nurse there, to make sure that that if somebody overdoses or whatever, there's at least an appropriate response to it. But it really is passive intervention. And it really is more inclined to be just give the drug and give the needle. Again, we're speaking of opiates here. Possibly it's got other implications. I'm not trying to be uh, negligent of those. I might even be ignorant of some. But for the sake of the conversation on today's podcast, it doesn't work. You can't regulate it at that level. What works probably best is a broad-spectrum approach that can include things like that, but has to, on the other side, have a legitimate intention to treat the base cause of the problem. And we're not even sure of the percentages that find themselves opioid use disorder How many have actually pre-existing mental health issues that were untreated because they were undiagnosed, because they came from, sociologically so, it can be a social-cultural, very uh, unhealthy environments, uh, families, family systems, you take into account that uh, there's a genetic component as much as a sociological aspect to addiction, it comes from one generation then, or it goes from one generation to the next, as with higher risk, significant risk. But we are not treating that very well. We don't even know the percentage of folks that get into drug problems because of that. You can try to take away the drugs again, as self-medicating, but you still have that problem you have to treat, and we're not ready to look at that at that level. Then you also have, as I mentioned earlier in today's podcast as well, those that have mental health or behavioral health uh, conditions that are exacerbated by their either drug use or, again, all the lifestyle that goes along with it. Again, cultural, sociological implications. Uh, Uh, unhealthy, maladaptive lifestyles, risky lifestyles, all those things. But until we see it broad spectrum, until we really treat it as a dual diagnosis issue or concomitant or concurrent, until we get a good diagnosis, a thorough one, we're just throwing in that same way a medication, even if it's something like Suboxone, Buprenorphine, Naloxone, and there's others, Uh, medications that are on the market right now. And I'm not saying there's not an attempt to get the best one, but principally so, why would we not look for or look at these other predisposing factors or variables that that would presume they were predisposing? But even if they're just concurrent, don't we need to do a multifactorial analysis? Do we not need to look at that in the broadest of terms? Otherwise, again, what we're going to get into is this notion of, as they did with heroin, oh, well, we'll just legalize it, send them to a methadone clinic, and we'll control the methadone. It doesn't work. It didn't work then, and it evolved over the years through all these things that we have mentioned on the program to a place where that was a standard practice. And that's probably, at this point, not a good practice. You want to be careful how I say it. It's turned out to have great need for, if we keep it, refinement. Because it's not worked as well or maybe not worked at all. Depending on who you are, what you know, how you look at it. But, to get back to our discussion today, if you've got tolerance, then you probably are dependent. Now, The final one is withdrawal, and withdrawal manifests itself by either, again, of the following two. The characteristic opioid withdrawal syndrome, which means all of those things, and the APA DSM outlines what that looks like, and next podcast that's what we're going to look at. Withdrawal, the symptoms of withdrawal. But if you're having physiologically and psychologically included withdrawal symptoms, you've not only got tolerance, but you've set yourself up to meet the criterion that substance has. Your choices in using the substance has resulted in you becoming substance-related addicted to opiates. Number two of that final 11 criterion number 11 criterion opioids or closely related substances are taken to relieve or avoid withdrawal symptoms and again if a doctor <laughs> if a doctor prescribes it it legitimizes it so i've said enough about that at least for today but if you're taking some substance in the context of medication-assist treatment, such as, again, suboxone, and that's not the only one, it's the most readily identifiable one, probably the most prevalent one right now on the market or in use or being prescribed, then you know if you don't take it, you're going to go through withdrawal, and you're going to be at increased risk then of relapsing you probably are opioid-dependent. Don't call it that anymore. We don't call it that anymore. We call it opioid use disorder. And then we have a subcategorization of mild, moderate, and severe, which we'll also get into at our next podcast. So this seems to be a very good point to end the podcast today. We've just completed the primary principal diagnostic criteria, not only for opioid use, but really, as you will find out as we cover the other substances on our list that I've chosen to talk about in this series of podcasts, you're going to find that these same criteria show up again and again and again because it's the template. It is the measuring stick. It's the primary tool of assessment that we use To know whatever the substance that has the potential to be misused, whether or not it is, and not only misused, but to the point of tolerance and withdrawal, you are an addict. Now again, I'd like to thank you for joining me today on Word with Dr. Michael David Clay and would encourage you to go back and catch previous podcasts, particularly the ones on this subject of uh, uh, substance use or substance-related and addictive disorders, Uh, but we're going to talk about a lot of things. Matter of fact, I at least have partial intention to go through the entire American Psychiatric Association Diagnostic and Statistical Manual because I think that somewhere in all of that, you're going to find you. (laughs) Maybe not so disordered, but you're going to know somebody. You're going to have some sort of reason to have had some contact with somebody or an experience along that line. And that's what you need. You need information. And hopefully with that, some encouragement that there are people who can see it in empirical, common sense terms, help you to know what the resources are available, how to treat it, and the resources that are out there that are available to treating it. And if not, again, specifically for you, the chances are you know somebody in your life, that has a similar problem. Again, I want to thank you for joining me today on Word and uh, would encourage you to come back and join again. Again, this is Dr. Michael David Clay.